0: Okay, welcome to this episode of The Hot Seat. We have very special guest, former professional mountain biker and environmental toxicology consultant out of Seattle, Washington. Welcome to the show, Anne Galleon. How you doing?
1: Hey, doing great. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, thanks for coming on. Uh, sounds like you had an interesting bike commute this morning. It's, it's pretty early out there in Seattle, I guess.
1: Yeah, I, I left the house around 5.30, got stuck in a train, got stuck in a drawbridge. It was pretty slow.
0: <laughs> well, before we get into this interview, can you share something with our audience that most people probably don't know about you?
1: Well, uh, I really don't like coffee. I, I don't like the taste of coffee. I don't drink coffee. I don't need caffeine in the morning. Uh, so that's pretty unusual, I'd say.
0: That's phenomenal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Because I'm on my second cup this morning. <laughs> yeah.
1: I just legitimately don't like the taste of coffee. I tried to like it, and being a scientist, I, I gave it a scientific, uh, you know, try. I did an experiment where I, I drank coffee every day for a month thinking it was, because everyone said it was uh, an acquired taste, right? So I tried it in a different form. I tried coffee ice cream. I tried coffee fancy drinks. Still hated it at the end of thirty days, so I figured I gave it a good
0: shot. <laughs> <laughs> well, sometimes I wish I had never started drinking coffee personally, but um so let's back up a little bit. Was it science or bikes first?
1: Science. Science. I didn't start riding bikes until senior college.
0: Until senior year of college. And so where did you grow up?
1: I grew up in a tiny split on the map in southeastern Idaho called Idaho Falls. There's not a lot there. There's potatoes, strip malls.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Idaho's a cool state, though. There's a lot a lot to do there.
1: It is. Not necessarily in the spot where I was. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, it's kind of one of those things where after you leave, you look back and you're like, oh, there were so many things I never did. But
0: So, would you call yourself an environmental toxicologist? And and should I call you Dr. Galleon?
1: Uh, no, that's not necessary. That sounds weird to me. <laughs> um, I'm not that kind of doctor anyway. I, I'm actually not an official toxicologist. So I work at a toxicology consulting firm. I'm learning to be a toxicologist, but my background is actually in chemistry and analytical chemistry. I studied nanoparticles in uh, – in, in grad school so
0: okay what are nanoparticles
1: nanoparticles are anything that is uh 100 nanometers or less than more than two dimensions so you can think of a as a, a tiny little speck of material that no more than 100 nanometers today. okay and put nanometers in perspective the difference between one meter and one nanometer is the same as the difference between the sun and a light bulb.
0: Wow. So is a germ considered a nanoparticle?
1: Technically, yeah, but germs can be a lot smaller or bigger. Depends on how big the organism is.
0: Okay. We, we digress. We digress. So <laughs> so science was your first love or your first passion, I should say. Somewhere along the way, you found mountain biking. How did that happen?
1: Well, I was – uh, I, so I, I rode – for fun as a kid, right? My, my, my dad's a cyclist, so I was exposed to bikes, but I, I kind of lost lost touch with it as I got older. And in 2008, I studied abroad in New Zealand, and uh, I actually took a mountain bike with me for transportation because I wasn't going to buy or rent a car while I was there. And uh, the, the school had this cool thing called clubs and society so you could go and be in a anything from like a yoga club to a cooking club to whatever and I wanted to join something that I could kind of tour the country and get outside and meet new people and so I was going to join the hiking club but it turns out every other American joined the hiking club too and I didn't really go down there to hang out with other Americans so
0: I was like i have about
1: Mike I'm going to join that Mike's club so I just did and they kind of, like, drugged me all over. I rode all kinds of trails. had no idea what I was doing. And uh, towards the end of the semester, they hosted a women's skills clinic led by the current downhill national champion at the time. And I was only one of two people who went, so I got a pretty, pretty one-on-one lesson, essentially, and I thought it was just the coolest thing. So I decided I was going to start racing bikes and came back to the States and started racing bikes.
0: So... Who was that? Who was the national champion that was teaching you?
1: It was Gabby Malloy.
0: Okay. And so would you consider her sort of a mentor to you getting into the sport? Or was there a mentor along your path?
1: Uh, I mean, I, she was definitely one of the first women I was exposed to in the sport. But unfortunately, I only got to meet and see her for that one afternoon. It was just a couple hours. Um I actually just kinda of started on my own. Came back and bought a bike and um for my birthday, Christmas and graduation I asked for full face helmet, body armor, and a season pass to the local Mountain Biking Hill, like, in that order. Um I'd never really ridden downhill before. I just started driving up. I was in uh I was in Virginia at the time, so I started driving to West Virginia at a place called Snowshoe. And I would go, and I'd sleep in my car, and I would just go ride bikes and try to figure it out. And uh, that was that.
0: And then, when did, when did you enter your first race? What kind of race was it?
1: It was the first year. It had been just a couple months. Uh, so she had a a series called the gosh, what was it? it was the Powerade series. There's three local races on their hill. So I entered beginner and. Ended up beating the amateurs, and so then I moved up to amateur the next race, and then ended up beating them. So then I moved up to pro by the third race that summer, and that was that.
0: And did you win the pro race? Yeah. So you had a, a clean sweep your first year.
1: Yeah, but, it, I mean, there's only, like, two or three people. You know, it was pretty tidy, super mm-hmm. tiny. But, mm-hmm. um, uh, yeah, I was pretty hooked after that.
0: And so then you were like, okay, did you, did you set up a schedule for the next year? Did you approach sponsors? How did you, uh, how did you move from there?
1: I didn't really know what I was doing. Right. So I just started going to every race within general driving distance on the East coast. Um, I had been approached actually by a group who had just put together a little privateer team. So they helped me with some pro deals, getting some gear and, uh, Yeah, I mean, I just started racing all up and down the East Coast while I was in grad school, and that was, yeah, raced downhill for about six years.
0: Okay, so it was all downhill racing? That was mainly what you were doing?
1: Yes. Yeah, I was just doing downhill, very no pedaling, to no (laughs) (laughs) pedaling.
0: But at some point, you jumped over into the enduro field. How did that go down?
1: Yeah, so I think 2013 was like the highlight of my downhill career I guess I won a national series I got selected for the world super cool I was in school at the time so financially that just didn't work out but uh and then I ended up getting hurt for a year so I it took a year off to heal and I also started riding more my local trail so not going to a ski resort which meant I had to start pedaling and got a little burned out down on downhill and Enduro was like the next big up and coming thing. So I thought I'd give it a shot and had a long way to go on fitness. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, so I made the switch and spent a couple years racing Enduro, moved to Colorado for my postdoc, and uh, joined the Yeti factory team for 2017. So that was sweet because then I got to race a couple international events and Race some of the bigger national series with really good support.
0: Very cool. Let's back up to this. So you made the national downhill team, but you didn't go compete. Be, just you just put school in front of that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, I mean that was the primary thing. I just wasn't. It wasn't a good time to get away from the laboratory, and there wasn't a lot of support from, I guess, USAC, the USA Cycling, at the time. Uh, so they cover the cost once you get to the other country or wherever world is being hosted. But it was in South Africa that year. And, you know, that's, that's kind of far away. So they told all of us that they would help us out with 250 bucks to get there. <laughs> and, um, yeah, I mean, a lot of people, you know, you know, crowdfunded, asked their families. I was super swamped with school and just decided it wasn't, wasn't in the cards that year. So.
0: Wow. A lot of people would give their left leg for an opportunity to go compete in an event like that. I guess that I guess that really shows uh, kind of where your priorities are
1: at. Uh, for me, science and academics was, has always been number one, like without question. It's never wavered for me. So it was honestly not that difficult of a decision for me. It was kind of like moving to Seattle and retiring from racing bikes.
0: Right, 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 right. So looking back at your career, what's the moment you're most proud of?
1: There's a a couple that stand out. One was in 2015. I raced an event called the Mega Avalanche in France. And you essentially start at the very top of an Alp on a glacier and race down. It takes like an hour. And that was probably the scariest thing I've ever done in my life, racing down the glacier you know, in the snow, on the ice, terrifying, but I survived it, and, like, I can always look back and say I did it, so that was pretty sweet, and then, again, in 2017, when I got to race for the team, I ended up getting top 10 at one of the Enduro World Series events in the U.S., which was super cool, because I felt like I was, you know, I was a postdoc, you know, I'd always been balancing these two career paths, and it was neat to be able to to achieve that, you know, not having dedicated 100% of my time to bike. It definitely brings up the, the what if, the, the infamous what if, you know, mm-hmm. like what if I had been able to dedicate 100% of time to bike and I wasn't in school or I wasn't a postdoc or I wasn't working, but for me, that was just never an option. So we made the best of it and had a good time.
0: What about the lowest? Let's flip the coin there. What what was the point when you were like, I got to get rid of this bike. I'm throwing this thing in the dumpster.
1: Oh, probably when I got hurt. I want to say it was 2014, maybe yeah, 2014. So right after the highest 2013 of uh, my downhill career, I guess, I injured my thumb. Just a thumb, a tiny little thumb, Coronal ligament, didn't ride a bike for nine months. I couldn't hold on. That was pretty rough.
0: How'd Uh, How'd you hurt it?
1: Oh, doing something really stupid. <laughs> um, I, I hesitated. I mean, that's that's what. As anyone in a more extreme sport, anytime you hesitate and you don't fully commit to something, that's when it's the most dangerous. And I definitely hesitated on a feature that I wasn't super comfortable on, and suffered the consequences. Came up short on a double and went over the bars, and they call it like classic classic skiers' thumb. But my thumb just got caught in the bars, and I went over.
0: Oh, so nine months off the bike. Were you itching for it? Were you were you riding a trainer, or were you just not doing anything like that? What was your What was your outlet?
1: I, I've always been a gym rat, so for me, lifting and uh, going to the gym has never been a chore. I enjoy it. I do it almost every day, even still. So I could still go to the gym, and that was fine. And I was a swimmer in high school and played water polo in college, so I could still swim after I just tape my hand up a bit. I could, I could still do stuff.
0: How do you juggle all that stuff? I mean, uh, you're competing at a high level on the bike. It sounds to me like you're staying in the gym four or five days a week. You're getting your doctorate. You're following this career path. How? what's your secret sauce for managing all of those tasks?
1: Not having a social life. <laughs> and <laughs> um, I, think, I think it really comes down to ruthless prioritization, right? Every, every day or every week, you sit down and you prioritize what you need to get done. And you have to accept that some things just don't get done. And as you reprioritize, as new things pop up, other things that are older go farther down the list and you have to just be okay with that. Uh, It's not easy, right? It's easy to feel uh, guilty for what you're not doing and what you think you should be doing. But I've certainly had to learn that uh, ruthless prioritization is really just the way to move forward and juggle as much as you can. The other thing is, decisiveness. Being decisive. Same thing on a bike. You have to make decisions quickly and mitigate your risk. And again, not hesitating. No immediate decision is necessarily catastrophic, right? You come to a fork in the road, you make a decision, and you make this decision relative to your your greater goal. So I'm in this fork in the road. Is left or right going to take me to that greater goal that I see in the distance? then you make a decision based on the information that you have at the time if it's the right one great you go to the next fork in the road and make another if it's the wrong one oh well you come to the next fork in the road and make another and that's that's just how you move through and you make decisions uh effectively and you forget (laughs) you move on you make a decision and you move on if you ruminate too much about past decisions then you're just wasting time
0: yeah yeah always keep the focus in front of you Did you have to learn this, or were you just always naturally good at this?
1: I feel like I've always been more of a big-picture person. I I kind of struggle getting down into the weeds and into the details. So as long as I can keep some bigger-picture goals and higher perspectives on where I'm going and where I want to be, then that tends to serve me well.
0: When you were initially racing downhill and then you know just through your racing career in general were there any aha moments anything that uh clicked in your head and all of a sudden you were going faster whether it be a technique or something you were doing with training was there anything you can share that that maybe some of our listeners could take away as like oh she grabbed a hold of that and it really helped
1: yeah a lot of it comes down to my brain so my brain tends to get in the way for me, more than anything, it'll overthink things, and I, I don't remember what year or even race it was, but I remember sitting in the start gate, and a friend of mine, his name is Ray Siren, he <laughs> would come up and smack me in the side of my helmet and say, "Aunt, brains are not for downhill." <laughs>
0: that should be that should be a t-shirt.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? But I once I stopped overthinking things as much, and granted, it's I'm always overthinking pretty much everything. But once I started to just let go of my brain, I could really be more present and focused on what's immediately in front of my tire. So like I mentioned before, being decisive, one of my struggles would be that, you know, say I'd make a mistake and I'd spend the next two minutes like worried about the mistake and thinking about the mistake. But that, of course, leads to other mistakes because you're not paying attention What's in front of you, you're thinking about what's behind you. So once I started to let that go a little bit and be a little bit more mindful about where my attention was focused and letting things go as they happened, uh, I actually gained a lot of confidence on the bike. And that led to a lot faster racing. As far as training is concerned, uh, again, I've always been a gym rat. So for me, the strength has never been my handicap. It's been a little bit more of the endurance side of things so it's kind of too late now but now that I'm commuting every day I have never been so fit on the bike which is pretty rad
0: you know I've had several people say that just the consistency of riding to and from every day has fully changed their game
1: it has completely I mean I could any you know all day doing intervals and never feel as comfortable on long days as i uh, do now that i commute
0: yeah it's uncanny do you think it's the consistency of that what do you think i'm just curious i mean i have no idea why do you think there's so much value in that because it seems to be a trend
1: yeah consistency definitely but just moving in that you know having that same motion on a twice a day (laughs) i I know how you know you're basically doing two a day workouts once in the morning, once in the evening, that's that's good. And also base miles, you can't underestimate base miles. And I know there's a lot of people out there, especially for sports like downhill or heck, even enduro, where you're focused more on the downhill, right? Only the downhills are times you're, sprint, you're sprinting, but people tend to underestimate the value of that base fitness in Those types of sports, and so I think that's what it is that we're developing when we're commuting.
0: What practical advice would you give to a young rider who wants to someday go pro? Somebody who's just just like you, just asked for you know a set of gear for Christmas. Is there any <laughs> is there any any bit of ge- bit of advice looking back that you would give them that maybe give them a, a little jump start on on what they're doing? Yeah,
1: there's well, there's two things that come to mind. The first is, this is especially for girls, go play on your bike. So a lot of boys will go out and just kind of jib around. You know, they're doing wheelies, they're jumping off stuff. Girls don't tend to do that as much. And I think that as a whole, we tend to suffer more on our technique later. So go play on your bike as much as you can. And that could be in the form of, thirty minutes a week just kind of playing around on in your street or in your, your you know, your front yard, your backyard, in a park. Do some wheelies, do some skids, do some track stands, just practice moving around on your bike. That will serve you so well in the long run. I love that. The other thing is network. I mean that sounds so silly, but as, you know, as a in a professional career, networking is everything, right? It's all about who you know but that's the same thing in a sport. Network everywhere. Go to a race. Talk to the race directors. Introduce yourself. Thank them for putting on the race. Go talk to team managers. Introduce yourself. Ask about what their program is like. Are they looking for anyone? If not, you know, keep me in mind for the future type thing. Network everywhere you go, because you'll never know you know, who has an opportunity. And if you are, know, on the tip of their tongues because you've been talking to them, you will come to mind first. Hmm.
0: All right. What if they wanted to turn it into a career?
1: Well, I mean, that's going to be your first step, right? Is, as in anything, it's all about who you know and getting to, you know, finding opportunities to race either on a team or, or otherwise. I mean, that, that's going to come down to your network. Career-wise, mountain biking is tough in the U.S. To be honest. Uh, there are not a lot of people who can make a living racing mountain bikes in the U S so that's kind of sucks, but um, you know, aim for the more national series because there are team managers. there are looking for people to race internationally and that's really where the support comes in.
0: Do you ever see like USA cycling or, or any, you know, organizations here in the States ever catching up to what happens overseas? Uh,
1: that's an interesting question. <laughs> I wouldn't, I don't see it happening anytime soon. I mean, I, I can't say USA Cycling has a big focus on, on mountain bikes. You no, know, they, they really support their road cycling program and that's great, but there's not a lot of support out there for the mountain bike side of things. I mean, it's from a, commercialization standpoint you know i i can see their argument it's it's not really a television sport (laughs) um especially stuff like downhill that's really hard to watch on a screen same with enduro you're out in the backcountry again hard to televise XC is a little different because it's an olympic sport so it gets a little bit more attention it depends on what kind of uh type of riding you're doing, is going to, it's going to dictate what kind of support that you get. But I really don't see USA Cycling moving too quickly in that direction, unfortunately.
0: Yeah. It's interesting, and in, in not just in cycling, this conversation, but in, you know, everything from paddle sports to just various disciplines of of athletes that we've had on the show. There is just a real lacking support for the athletes with the governing bodies here across a lot of sports compared to other places. It's I uh, I don't know. It seems like it needs to be something that, that it seems like it could be fixed and really help out in a big way. And it doesn't seem like it should be that hard to do, but you're right. It just seems to be something that never can quite get straightened out.
1: Well, I think that might. My- is in a unique situation because it used to be bigger. So back in like the, you know, 1990s, early 2000s, mountain biking was huge in the U.S. And it was bigger in the U.S. than other countries. You know, there were big name sponsors. Uh, a friend of mine who I knew who lives in Maryland, now she used to race during that time, Marla Streb. And I remember her telling me a story about, yeah, I did a commercial for like m M&M, and m and i bought a house like <laughs> so it used to be big and you used to have that kind of money in the sport i don't really know what happened <laughs> you know about 10 years later it just dried up completely you know all the big name sponsors pulled out and i don't know if it has to do with again the fact that it's not really something you can put on television very easily um but it it definitely used to be which makes me think it's possible to do it again we just have to figure out where the monetary value is for sponsors.
0: Mm, yeah. To me, sponsors seem to come and go, but I would love to have some governing body that could support a core national team in all the main disciplines of mountain biking. It seems to me like that's not an unrealistic thing, you know? Of course, everybody can't get paid, but it seems like you could have like five seats in each class that, you know, at least get funded to travel and go to races. But, you'd think. You know, exactly. You'd think. Let's talk about enduro racing for a second. Mm-hmm. What do you like about it?
1: What I like about enduro racing is it's by far the most social type of mountain bike racing that I've experienced. Uh, you're basically just going on a big ride with your friends, everyone kind of rides together on the transition. You know, you're kind of hanging out at the top together, everyone's cheering for each other off the line. You're basically just out all day suffering together and that's you know, that's some sort of camaraderie. But the other thing about Enduro is that it's not there's not quite as much pressure as there is in say downhill. Downhill you might have let's say five minutes, you have a five minute race. You have to get everything right. You know, there are hundredths of a second at the at the end of the line that will separate first, second, third. You have to get everything right. You have to memorize everything. And that's not the same in enduro. Oftentimes, you might get one look at a trail in enduro in practice. That's it. You get one look. You can't memorize everything. And so you're not riding 110%. Slightly less risky. But there's also it's more of a consistency game. You know, the person who wins is the one who makes the fewest mistakes over the course of the day or the weekend. So one little mistake won't necessarily cost you the race. So it takes a little bit of the immediate pressure off at any given time, which just kind of makes the whole thing a little bit more enjoyable.
0: What about, like, you know, there's a lot of variation in the way enduros are run. What's your favorite way to do it? Do you like uh, to have a certain amount of time you have to get your transitions done? Do you like... Uh, everybody goes in intervals. How do you like, what's your favorite way enduros are staged and put on?
1: That's an interesting question. There, there are a lot of consequences to doing it either way. So the bigger races, like the big international races, they do have start times for every stage. So you have a minimum or a maximum amount of time that you can spend on the transition. Sometimes that's really tight and your transition hurts a little bit. <laughs> more than you're used to On the other hand sometimes you get a local race that there's no time limit they just say you start at 8 a.m try to finish by five maybe and just go out and you know get through all the stages in your own time again pros and cons one's more relaxed than the other however the one without start times you tend to end up with a lot of waiting what if everyone gets to the top at the same time? Well, you got to wait for the line to go in front of you. Mm-hmm. You might sit at the top for an hour. So I actually prefer things a little bit more structured in that there are start times or at least some cutoff to try to move things quickly, and then you're not waiting as much in between each stage.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, t- I tend to agree. I've done a couple Enduros, and I tend to agree with that, um, that vibe. What about e-bikes? What's your, uh, what's your take on e-bikes?
1: Well, my, my current daily experience with e-bikes is when I get past, like, I'm standing still <laughs> on one of the Seattle hills by some, like, you know, 70-year-old fat dude. <laughs> but uh, I will say that I actually really like e-bikes in the sport. I don't have one personally, but I think that they are a great way to get more people out on bikes whether that's in commuting or on the trail. I I don't think from a mechanical perspective that an e-bike is necessarily doing any more damage than a non-motorized bike Um, as far as, you know, trail maintenance is concerned. But I like the fact that it's getting more people into the sport and that's always a good thing.
0: I was an e-bike hater for so long. And then I went out and got on some of the new specialized bikes yeah, I pretty much felt like I needed to buy one on the spot. It's super cool. I'll tell you what's cool about riding an e-bike, a mountain bike in specifics, is you can just put a big fat tire on them, more suspension than you normally would the whole nine yards, and you're just on this big fluffy bike that if you were just pedaling it without the e-assist, you'd be like, there's no way I'm taking that on this ride today. But, I mean, being you yeah. got the power, you can just put so much more bike underneath you. It's, I don't know.
1: You can do that, and you can do so much more riding. I mean, you can get out and do a trail that might take you six hours otherwise, uh, and it makes a lot of trails, especially in the backcountry, a little bit more accessible.
0: There's a lot of stereotypes with the way – you know, athletes and not just mountain biking, but all sports should look and act and what they should do. And you kind of break the norm on that. And I think there's probably a lot of athletes out there who do that. And maybe, um, but one thing that resonates with me about you is you're super comfortable in your skin, the path you've chosen, going to the forks of the road. You know, if someone were to feel like they didn't necessarily fit in is there anything that you any advice you'd offer on ways to just just go with what you got I mean you know is there any uh insight there on kind of excelling but not being quite the norm
1: so one of my favorite things ever is not fitting in and breaking stereotypes uh so for me that's that's awesome I love it I love doing that I don't fit in and I don't like to fit in. I've tried to do it and it feels weird to me. So uh yeah, I mean I'm a scientist who rides mountain bikes, but I'm also a mountain biker who's a scientist. And both of those are a little weird and outside the norm. I guess to me it's more of embracing the stereotype breaking because of the fact there are other people who don't feel like they fit in. And I think that's important. Right. I mean, representation matters in all aspects. So, if there are people that you can see that, oh, that person doesn't fit in either. It's okay that I don't feel like I fit in. I mean, I think that's really important and that's huge. And I I love shattering people's um, judgmental expectations of things. You know, I kind of look like a like a punk kid. I often have weird haircuts and I have lots of tattoos and, you know, walking down the halls of like a government research facility. That's pretty weird, but I like that. I, I like breaking people's expectations of, of what they think they should see. And especially doing that for like kids and other people who are kind of searching for someone to tell them it's okay to be who they are. And I, I do this thing that I start, uh, started it last year There's a school in Pennsylvania full of third graders, and every year they've been doing this project on women in science. And it's a really long story how I got involved with them, but needless to say, part of it involves like a video chat with the students. And I asked them, how many of you think that scientists, all scientists are just white men in lab coats? And honestly, most of the room raised their hands. And that is so difficult for me because that couldn't be farther from the truth. I mean, sure, it's very male dominated, just like mountain biking is, but that's, we don't all look like that. And I love being able to say, this is what a scientist really looks like, or this is what a mountain biker really is. We're not just one faceted and we don't necessarily fit in a mold and it's okay that someone else doesn't either. So Personally, I love, I love breaking scary tattoos.
0: It's one of my favorite things to do ever. <laughs> well, you're certainly doing it. So I, I was doing a little research. Speaking of tattoos, you brought that up a second ago. I was doing some research <laughs> online, looking at some past articles and things. There's some good stuff out there. But you've got this tattoo of like – it's like a carbon chain or something. What is the, what is this tattoo it's, um let me see this thing. Our listeners can't see this. Okay, yeah, what is that?
1: It's adrenaline. <laughs> it's a molecular structure of adrenaline.
0: Oh, okay, I gotcha. When did you get that? How did you come up with that?
1: Oh, that. I mean, that's a no-brainer, right? Chemistry and adrenaline junkie all merged into one. <laughs> I, uh, I'm a bit privileged in that my sister is a tattoo artist, so she and I can sit down and brainstorm some pretty – Pretty fun stuff, and uh, she lives here in Seattle too. So
0: now, it looks like, again, from some of the things I was reading before this interview, you're in. You're doing some coaching now. How did you get into that, and where are you doing that through? Tell me a little bit about this
1: coaching thing. So, mountain bike coaching, I think, is a relatively new thing, uh, but There are a lot of amazing folks doing skills coaching and mountain bikes these days, all over the country, all over the world, really. But it's a really good way for those of us with a lot more experience, especially in racing, to come in and help people with mountain bike technique. One of the things that makes, you know, riding a bike more enjoyable outside is if you don't feel like you're going to fall all the time and you feel a little bit more comfortable on the bike. So I think helping people achieve that just makes their experiences better. And it also just helps keep people safer. So there are a lot of cool opportunities to get certified in different types of coaching. Um, I went and got a certification from PMBIA, it's a Canadian-based company. And there are, uh, there are several others. I know Imba does one and some local regional groups do some as well. But I know there are, a, I know a lot of women personally who make a living coaching bikes and coaching women specifically to try to get more women into the sport, to try to break down some of those intimidation barriers for uh, being on a bike. And we've really seen a benefit. You know, there are more women in the sport and all of these, uh, these coaching classes and these clinics and these series, they are up the interest is there women want to learn how to ride a bike safely more confidently um and just have more fun so for me it was kind of a no-brainer now that i'm done racing to sort of get a coaching certificate and and start getting into giving back to the mountain biking community in some way so one of the things that i wanted to do was not reinvent the wheel you know i don't want to go in and reinvent a beginner skills clinic because I think there are plenty of people doing that really well. and There's a lot of cool uh, groups out there. But what I wanted to do is reach more of the intermediate level folks. So people who have either graduated a beginner skills clinic or just want to advance their skills a little bit more so that they could feel more comfortable and say Black Diamond Trails in their area. So I kind of want to target those, those folks. Maybe help people get into racing who feel like they're not quite technically ready to race. Um, so that's gonna be focusing on, we're not gonna go necessarily learn bike body separation. We're gonna go and session a trail in your area uh, and go feature by feature, sort of show you on the trail what kind of skills that you need to get through these these, these types of uh, black diamond
0: obstacles. Very cool. If, if one of our listeners wanted to take a class with Anne Galleon, how would they find out about that?
1: Well, I don't have anything started yet. <laughs> um, I'm working with a group called Compass Outdoor Adventures in North Bend, Washington. It's about 40 minutes east of Seattle. And they are primarily a guiding company. So they do a lot of corporate retreats, but they've also been getting into mountain bike guiding trips. They have a whole demo fleet. And what we want to do is start a guided skills ride series where we can go out with some certified coaches, intermediate level riders and go session some obstacles on trails that they feel like might be slightly above their head and they're not comfortable doing on their own. So we want it to be in a safe environment. Hopefully we get those started in the next couple months. So I would keep an eye on Compass Outdoor Adventures and uh, hopefully we'll get something up on their website soon.
0: What's your year looking like? What do you have in store?
1: I've got some pretty big career goals. I'm just working my way up the ladder here at the company. So uh, I'm kind of busting my butt here. But also one of the things I wanted to do this year was race an event called Trans BC, And I'm going to be racing that in July. It's, going to, it's a six-day backcountry blind enduro, which is nothing I've ever done before. And it sounds kind of scary very difficult. So I'm really excited for it.
0: And so on this, I've definitely heard of this race. It's a pretty well known event. Um, how do they do the blind trails? Do they, are they just not going to let you know what the course is until you show up that day? How, how are they doing it?
1: It's that, so they don't release the course ahead of time, but they also build a lot of trails from scratch specifically for ah. the race. So in theory, no one has local knowledge, which can often be frustrating for enduros elsewhere. You know, you might show up and have one day to practice, whereas the locals have been practicing for a month. Uh, so in this case, it's com- it's completely blind. Everyone's on a level playing field.
0: Very cool. That's exciting. How many people are going to be up in that event?
1: I'm not Sure. They're not very many. I mean, maybe a hundred, 150, 200, somewhere in there. It's, it's capped, So it's a pretty small group and I'm, I'm really stoked. Again, I've never done blind racing before, so that's going to be a big learning curve. Uh, it's You have to be a little bit more reserved. You know, you can't race a hundred percent. You can't even race 90, 95% sometimes. More in the eighties. <laughs> uh-huh. um, so that's, going to be an experience but that's going to be the highlight of my year that's pretty much what i'm focusing on this this
0: season yeah that's a pretty rad highlight where uh where can our listeners follow you are you an instagrammer facebooker where can they see your 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 journey here up to the to the race in bc
1: uh i am i'm an instagrammer that's just my name at ann Gallian. uh i'm a my husband's actually a professional mountain bike photographer so I'm pretty lucky, and I, I get a lot of cool media. We can do a lot of shots, so definitely support him and his work as well. He works, um, if anyone's a pink bike uh, patron in the mountain bike world, he's a mountain bike photographer for pink bike, So,
0: Well, what's his name? How can we follow him? Let's give him a shout-out.
1: <laughs> his name is Matt Delorme. His Instagram is mdelormephoto, but any of my photos will link you to that as well.
0: Well, very cool. Well, that about concludes our interview here. Is Anne? is there anything else that you would like to add or share with our listeners before we let you go?
1: Uh, Just have a lot of fun, man. I mean, (laughs) everything should be fun. If you're not having fun both in work, in your sport, in life, then you're doing something wrong, and it's time to reevaluate. Everything should be enjoyable, even the hard work.
0: There you go. Value bombs galore. Yeah, well, thank you for coming on the hot seat. Um, Ladies, go play on your bike. I love that quote. That one's definitely going to make the notes. And, yeah, yeah, we'll have to get you back on the show after your race up in BC.
1: That would be awesome. Thank you.